Eric, on October 3rd, something important was happening at Uber's headquarters in San Francisco. Yeah, they had (laughs) sort of a brawler of a board meeting after sort of weeks of negotiations and now, what, nine months of trouble and trials and tribulations. On the table is a massive $10 billion potential investment from SoftBank, the Japanese technology giant run by the very shrewd Masayoshi-san. This is the deal that's supposed to sort of heal all wounds somehow, reform governance, and just somehow make peace. So this is not just an investment. This is about healing the wounds of the past. Yeah, it's it's the kitchen sink just sort of of reforms to try and prepare the new CEO, Dara Khosrowshahi, to sort of empower him to actually run the company and not have all this infighting constantly. Hi, I'm Brad Stone. And I'm Eric Newcover. And this week on Decrypted, we're bringing you an update on Uber, which was the ultimate Silicon Valley success story just a few months ago. But as you probably know, a series of high-profile crises have brought this once mighty company to its knees. Today, Uber is facing five criminal probes from the Justice Department on topics ranging from bribery to price discrimination to theft of intellectual property. It is also facing dozens of civil lawsuits, including one from Alphabet, the parent company of Google, and that's set to go on trial in December. So we'll ask how things at Uber went so badly wrong, and we'll introduce you to two Uber executives who, behind the scenes, signed off on and supervised some of the company's most controversial programs. Finally, as a new CEO takes the reins, we'll see what lies ahead for the company. Stay with us. So, Eric, we're going to work our way up to this portentous board meeting on October 3rd. But, you know, first, Uber goes into this moment with a reputation as an absolute corporate pirate, right? A lawbreaker. How did it develop that reputation? In the beginning, Travis Kalanick, who is Uber's CEO and is this fighter and sort of paranoid, competitive guy, like, that's a deserved reputation. But in the beginning... He was saying, oh, everybody should follow the law and not break the rules. Right. He was faced in 2012, after they had operated for a few years as a very legal black car company, by some other companies, Lyft among them, that introduced the idea of ride sharing. Anybody could offer a ride in their own car. Right. And Uber was opposed to that until they realized that regulators weren't going to do anything and so that they were going to lose out to this cheaper service and that they needed to take action. Now, around this time, Travis hires is really his corporate attorney, Sally Yu. Tell us about her and why she's important. Yeah, she's like a litigator. Like from a law firm, she'd been there 13 years. She'd made partner. She didn't really think she was going to leave. But then a friend showed her this random job at Uber in the very early days, and she sat down with Travis and then quickly joined the company. And one of her first challenges at the company is, should Uber, a black car service, be more like Lyft and a company called Sidecar in the ride-sharing category. Ultimately, obviously, they decided to get into that with UberX. What were the implications of that decision? So Travis writes this white paper, number one, you know, where they say, where there's a legal gray area, where the law isn't enforced, we're going to take that as a tacit endorsement that it's okay. They've deleted that blog post. I think it's worth that's That's all you need to know on it. Um, but that idea that they would do what they wanted as long as nobody was stopping them defined the company. Right. It, it meant that they were going to really challenge taxi regulations all around the world. And it also meant that they were going to get into 
a very competitive environment with a lot of downward pricing pressure, which of course would have implications for all their drivers, would have implications for uh, how they had to function as a competitor because they're competing basically in a commodified environment. So we're in the year 2013 here, UberX rolls out, and this is a period of hyper growth for the company. Mm -hmm. It's valued at $17 billion. It's expanding in cities every single week. We sort of thought this was coming, but now we know it's confirmed. $17 billion? And there was a lot of competition to lead the rounds. Other investors in the round, Kleiner Perkins, Google Ventures, right. Menlo Ventures, obviously demand was very much there. Travis is a competitive guy, right. as we both know. What are some of the techniques he introduces back then to compete against companies like Lyft? I mean, I think it's so funny that I mean, Uber is this quote-unquote technology company, but it was really sort of fighting in the streets. And one of the key elements was this thing called slogging, you know, where they, they would have employees, and this happened all over the world, go and ride in a competitor's car and say, hey, why don't you work for Uber? And, you know, that's a very manual way to get new business. They would also say that their competitors did that to them as well. Yeah, I mean, it was sort of industry practice. But this is like the level of street fighting we're talking about. It's one-to-one, -one, like spend employee time going to recruit individual drivers to get them on your team. So slogging may have been industry practice, but around this time, Uber starts to introduce other programs that are somewhat unique and perhaps ethically dubious. For the first time, you reported on one of those programs called Surf Cam. There's another one called Hell. Doesn't sound so good. They're really good at naming. Really good. What, yeah. what, are, what were these things? They let Uber scrape their competitor's API, which is a way of saying, okay, as a tech company, you put out this information for people to sort of partner with you. Uber would abuse that information and use it to understand, you know, where Lyft was at any given time or in Southeast Asia where Grab's car was or how, how much they were being utilized, like learn things about their competitors. And what was the Hell program? Hell is the U.S. version of that. It, it's sort of a tongue-in-cheek name. So Uber internally has Heaven, which is their sort of view of everything, where all their cars are at any given moment. So Hell is the version where they get to figure out where they're competitors' cars are and, you know, take advantage of that information. So now going back to Sal Yu, the in-house lawyer, what is she thinking about all this? So the legal team gives sort of initial okays of, you know, hell and these other programs. They, they look at it and say, all right, you know, API scraping is okay within these parameters. But then the programs sort of go wild. By the way, back in 2014, these programs were still very secretive, right? Nobody really knew about them. Right. But what was starting to bubble up were some of these very bad incidents you know, in Ubers, including a sexual assault case in India. I think we would both argue that perhaps that was a little bit of a turning point for Uber's reputation. Right. So the, a woman you know, was in an Uber and was raped by her driver. The driver was later convicted. It was a crazy story in India. The company, though internally handled it poorly. So at the time of this incident, Uber is consumed with the competitive environment. And, and somewhat grotesquely, you know, management thinks that this could be, you know, a competitive tactic, this, this sex crime by a rival in India. Um, they, they hire a firm to investigate it. And the firm obtains the medical records of the victim. Then maybe some Uber executives get those medical records. That is, you know, just by any measure, grotesquely wrong. Right. This, this went to the top levels of the organization. I mean, Travis Kalanick was involved in sort of raising questions, even after the woman 
Striver was convicted of the rape about whether their competitor Ola had set them up for this. And his top business executive and a close confidant of his, Eric Alexander, had the report at one point and was going around talking about the woman's very private rape report. And so that's continuing to haunt them. And there are questions now about how they got it in the first place and whether they were in violation of you know, anti-bribery laws. So Eric, tell us more about Sally Yu. Are, are her and Travis kind of birds of a feather when it comes to pushing the boundaries of the law? She really has this funny moment where Travis tells her he wants her to be innovative. It really made her angry. In another interview, uh, sort of recounts, you know, playing tennis with her husband and getting this feedback that Travis wanted her to be innovative. And at the end of the match, she sort of, I guess, is exhausted and has processed it and decides that, you know, he's telling her that their, their team can act differently than everybody else's legal team, that Uber can be creative in ways that other people won't, and that basically she needs to sort of figure out how to make it possible for Uber to do all this stuff even when the law doesn't seem to be in their favor. And by the way, I mean, that in most cases was a su- successful approach, yep. right? If they hadn't pushed the boundaries, Uber never would have launched in cities like New York or London or San Francisco, for that matter. Okay, so now I want to introduce another person in a position of authority at Uber. His name is Joe Sullivan. Most people have never heard of him, but he's a big tech figure. He worked at PayPal, eBay. He was the head of security for Facebook. And so Uber brings him in as this heavy hitter. But then his portfolio is like all the sketchy stuff, like all the dark arts of Uber is basically Joe Sullivan's organization. Yeah, you describe him in a, in a recent story as running kind of a corporate spy agency inside Uber. And all these programs that we've just talked about, these ethically dubious kind of monitor your rivals programs like hell, Joe runs those. Right. Any program with a insidious sounding name was part of his organization. You know, one part of his fiefdom was called competitive intelligence. They called it coin that contained hell and other data scraping efforts. He ran... SSG, which, you know, literally sounds like the KGB, which strategic services group, which would hire people to surveil competitors and their employees. Right. Uber had a, the head of its Chinese business, who was uh, the cousin to the head of its primary rival's business, Didi. And we reported in a recent story that, you know, allegedly Joe's group had their own employee monitored because perhaps they were questioning her loyalty to the company. Yeah, they just wanted to make sure she didn't interfere with the deal and sort of help her cousin out. Um, Right, the deal where uh, Uber sold its business to Didi in China. But here's the key question, you know, which is, to what extent did Uber's board know about all of these slightly nefarious activities? Certainly the board claims to not have known. Knowing Uber and Travis, they must have known that they were pushing the boundaries and then chose not to get into the specifics. I think that's how it's looking right now. And certainly on a lot of fronts, there's an effort from the board to say, we had no idea what was going on. Right. Now, throughout this period in time, around 2015, the company is growing by leaps and bounds. But we've been told that Sally Yu, the chief lawyer, is starting to get a little nervous. And she cautions Travis But, you know, Travis, headstrong, very competitive. He keeps pushing the boundaries of the law. Right. In an all-hands meeting to his employees, like lots of people there, he says that they don't need to follow laws that aren't being enforced. He says, you know, we'll have to see what the regulators do. And if they're not doing anything to our competitors, we should push the boundaries too. And Sally's just like, you can't say that. Like she sends an email being like, you know, the message of compliance is very important here. And this is going to matter if we face 
criminal investigations down the line because if something individually does something bad, the whole company could be held responsible if we don't have a good corporate compliance culture. So in, a, in other words, after a two-year period of successful, what they would call legal innovation, Sally Yu and Travis Kalanick are on a collision course. By now, it's the summer of 2016, and Uber is a huge company. It's raised $12 billion. Its valuation is an insane $69 billion. And amidst all this kind of hype and energy, Uber very quietly changes the way it calculates fares. So Uber announces publicly, okay, we're going to do upfront fares. We're going to be super transparent. We're telling people beforehand how much we're charging you. But what they didn't really make clear publicly is that that also meant that they were going to start paying drivers independently from what they charge passengers, which made it possible for them to find all sorts of crafty ways to charge passengers more without paying drivers more. There is a federal statute called the Robinson-Patman Act, which, you know, forbids any kind of pricing discrimination. You know, to, to what extent is Uber wandering into this, you know, legally gray or even just illegal territory? And what is Sally Yu thinking about this? Well, they're being investigated for their pricing policies, so definitely wandered sufficiently for prosecutors to look into it. I think there are all sorts of questions. I mean, Uber's operating in physical locations, going from neighborhoods. You can imagine actual discrimination, not just pricing discrimination being an issue. So yeah, it's it's a big set of their troubles at this point. And then at the same time as it is experimenting with some of these pricing tools with names like Cascade and Firehouse, Uber makes what I, I might argue is its biggest mistake yet, which is in, over the summer of, of 2016, it acquires a small autonomous car startup in San Francisco called Auto. And Auto is run by a former, a very recently former uh, Waymo right. division of Google executive named Anthony Lewandowski. In 2016, when they bought Auto, they seemed like geniuses. Like it looked like Uber was flying high. The valuation was super high. They just expanded their self-driving car unit. It seemed like they were really on the path to do great things. Well, it was a bold move, right? Because right. it's not it's really not related to Uber's business, you know, and they say we're going to get into deep tech and compete with Google. So they they buy Auto, which is largely made up of former Google employees and run by a former Google employee, and that seems great. It's going quiet, 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 and then all of a sudden Alphabet, the parent company of Waymo, you know, the, Google, they have so many names over there, but you you know, basically Google sues Uber in a mega lawsuit and says, you stole our trade secrets by buying this company. And it turns the attention to the question of, okay, uh, Anthony Lewandowski, you know, it's still, I guess, allegedly, had downloaded all these files from Google before he left. And the question that, you know, Sally Yu must have been asking herself is, you know, how much did Uber know about the way in which Anthony Lewandowski had left Google? A lot. <laughs> A lot. I mean, that's what we've been learning now, that Uber... It wasn't like they bought the company and then they realized, oh, crap, this guy might have stolen stuff from Google. It was, oh, it seems like he's taken he's told us that he's taken five hard disks of information. What do we do now? And Travis is like, no, we should definitely buy the company still. Let's figure out how to protect ourselves. 
So to your point that Uber knew before they finalized the acquisition of Auto, they hired a forensics firm called Straws Friedberg, right? And and Straws goes and tries to assemble a portfolio of all the information that Anthony and his team have from Google and kind of isolate it, get it out of the company. Right. The idea is if it never gets to Uber, we're fine. And I mean, it was sort of, you can read the report now, and Lewandowski is literally like, emptying the trash on his computer like the day of their meeting with him. It's just the it's clear that the investigators themselves are sort of troubled by some of the activity when he's really supposed to try and hand everything over to them so they can sort of know about it and wall it off from Uber so that Uber can't get in trouble. For and, it. and this is all happening very quietly over the summer and fall of 2016, so quietly that board member Bill Gurley from, from Benchmark, one of Uber's investors, claims he doesn't even know about this. Right. He testified under oath that the board was never told about Uber's findings. Meanwhile, they'd approved all these contractual things like indemnifying Anthony Lewandowski for past bad acts. So hopefully we've laid the groundwork here for what then happens in early 2017. You know, Donald Trump has been elected. A sort of different political environment descends on Silicon Valley. And it's in that environment that we start to see the delete Uber hashtag. Susan Fowler, a former Uber employee, writes a very critical blog post of of what she called the misogynistic and harassing culture for women. And one by one. A rough week for Uber appears to be getting rougher. The New York Times is reporting Uber used software to elude authorities in cities where the ride-hailing service is not yet approved. By using the program known as Grayball, Uber... And amid all these crises, all these controversies, a video emerges, a very unflattering video of Travis Kalanick. It's so funny because it's so mundane in some ways. I mean, Travis is just bopping around in the back of the car with these two women and having sort of mild conversation... And then the women get out of the car and the driver sort of starts interacting with Travis and Travis opened the conversation. And by the end of it, they're having this fight where Travis is swearing and it's just very un-CEO like and also just sort of shows his sort of lack of compassion for one of his drivers. But people are not trusting you anymore. Do you think people will buy cars anymore? I, I lost $97,000 because of you. I bankrupt because of you. Look. Yes, so, yes, yes. You, know you keep changing every day. What have you I, keep, you what, keep changing every day. Hold on a second. Day. What have I changed about black? Huh? What have you I changed, changed the whole business. What? what? You dropped the prices. On on black? Yes, you did. Bull- we started with $20. Bull- we started with $20. You know what? How much is the mile now? $275? You know what? What? Some people... Don't like to take responsibility for I their take own shit. They blame everything but in their life on somebody else. Email for town card. Good luck. And then what happens is earlier in the summer, you know, all this accrues and Travis's position becomes basically untenable. The board, led by you know the investors at at Benchmark, who have claimed to be surprised by all the things that we've talked about, uh, you know they confront him in a hotel in Chicago and they tell him that his his tenure as CEO is over. So, Eric, back to the board meeting on October 3rd. In light of all of these scandals, it's it's not that surprising that the board wants to further limit Travis Kalanick's power, right? He's no longer CEO, but he's on the board. He controls two other seats. Maybe one day he'll come back. But this is Silicon Valley, right? We revere the founder. We revere the founding CEO, which Travis basically is. 
Well, part of the fight here is just how bad was it at Uber? I think there are different camps. There's sort of, you know, the benchmark camp, which is it was terrible. Like we are being sued by Alphabet. Like everything is. And then there are board members who want to sort of say, you know, it was sort of bad. We got rid of him, but he, he can stick around. I think another key point is that when Travis resigned, he agreed to hand over a lot of his power over these board seats. And then he reneged on the deal. Like and he, the other aspect, yeah. and this is a little technical, but it's it's true at a lot of Silicon Valley companies, there are different classes of stock, right? And Travis owns shares of stock that come with super voting powers. And the board at this momentous meeting is trying to get rid of those and limit his power in that way too. Right. And ahead of the board meeting, fearing that the board was going to take away a lot of his power, it Travis filled his two board seats suddenly. Uh John Thane and Ursula Burns, two, you know, very senior former executives, uh, one Merrill Lynch, one Xerox. But he fills them, sort of proving the impulsiveness and sort of power of this ousted founder that wasn't going to go quietly. And and this is a very fractious board, right? You have Travis and some of his supporters. I think Ariana is still somewhat in his camp. You have, you know, the first CEO, Ryan Graves, and the one of the co-founders, Garrett Camp. Um, but you've got Benchmark, you know, you've got... Um, David Trujillo at TPG. Right. I mean, yeah, there are a lot of characters. And, it, it was an 11-person board before this and, meeting started. And Dara Khosrowshahi, the new CEO, who's right in the middle and really trying to, you know, get rid of all this divisiveness and just safeguard the future for the company. Dara Khosrowshahi, the new CEO who had come over from Expedia, the dark horse candidate who is now controlling everything, is doing a pretty good job of playing the convener, like getting everybody on the same page, even as he's one of the authors of these reforms that are going to live at, limit Travis's power. Yeah, his appointment surprised almost everyone, right? The names we were hearing were Meg Whitman from HP or Jeff Immel, formerly from GE. Uh, Dara, you know, is a, is a professional CEO. He ran Expedia for many years. He feels like an adult, frankly, in this scenario. For sure, yeah. And I think he wants to make sure that well, he's new and he has all his support and good press and everything that he can sort of get the company's governance under control. So that meant, you know, moving the company to one share, one vote, having a lot of new independent board members so that the power of Travis board members and the current board that's dysfunctional would be diluted. And meanwhile, they needed to figure out how to integrate SoftBank into the company if they're going to make this deal. And, and before we get to the the finalization of on the SoftBank decision, as if this situation needed to be any more complicated, in September, the city of London, one of Uber's biggest markets, basically refuses to renew Uber's license to operate there. This is Dara's basically first big test as the CEO of, of Uber. And Dara went to London. He met with the head of, of TFL, Transport for London, and he talked to the mayor. And afterwards, they were saying nice things about Uber. It was sort of re remarkable. So let's finally get back to SoftBank, uh, the sort of underlying question of this episode. They're offering a $10 billion dollars. A little bit to Uber, but also many to the early investors and employees to give them some liquidity. It's a huge sum of money. Uber doesn't really need the money. Right. So this isn't really about Uber getting new money. Uber's getting a billion dollars new, which for the company is like, whatever. We've raised like more than $15 billion. What's really interesting here is the other $9 billion, which is buying out the existing shareholders. It's like a mini IPO. It's going to be the largest, if this thing finishes, the largest private stock sale ever. So it is going to be a huge cash change of hands. 
And it's all happening sort of in this negotiated private way, not in an IPO. Right. And it has so many implications for governance of the company, Travis's role, the future of Uber. What does the board decide? So the board, up until like this Tuesday meeting, they're like negotiating, they're writing things throughout the night, tweaking provisions. And so finally, I mean, they all unanimously agree because they can see the writing on the wall. I mean, I think... Dara, Benchmark, the people who wanted to sort of rein in Travis got what they wanted here. They moved to one share, one vote. But Travis got enough concessions from the original proposal that he looked pretty good, too. We got to keep his two board members, and they agreed to move the board to 17 people. You know, I, I don't know how many of Uber's problems this solves, right? There's still been a lot of turnover of top execs. I would have to imagine morale is pretty low. And a lot of Uber's you know biggest competitors, like Lyft, like Ola in India, Grab in Southeast Asia, have used this period of incredible turmoil to raise money themselves and to improve their, their positions in the market. Yeah, I think this is sort of the baseline thing that Dara needed to do. This needs to get done just so... He doesn't have Travis trying to come back, so the board's more functional. They're independents, so that people can get liquidity and sell some of their shares. But there's, like you said, there's so much more that they need to do. They're gonna have they have to fight five criminal probes, like at least federal They're, probes. Yes, yeah, yeah. And, so, and the Waymo lawsuit and many many other private lawsuits. And it was and, just reported that uh, Google wanted a billion dollars to settle that. So. It's, it doesn't stop. There's a lot of problems for him to solve. And to that point, uh, our legal guardians at Uber, Sally Yu and Joe Sullivan, what has become of them? So Joe's still there. The board investigation into his team is ongoing. Sally is on the way out. I mean, she's she's stepping away. Uh, Dara is looking for a general counsel right now. It'll be interesting to see who— And she's helping with the process. Yes. But I think she's been alienated from the company a little bit here and— I mean, they know they need a new lawyer, but I think it's it's going to be a hard job. So it'll be interesting to see if they can get someone. And Travis Kalanick, he's not CEO, but I get the impression, I don't know about you, that he, he, Uber's still his life. And he's still behind the scenes working pretty much nonstop on, on at least board issues. Yeah, he's super involved. It'll be interesting to see if he can start a new company or find some philanthropy to sort of give the company some space. And that's it for this week's Decrypted. Thanks for listening. We want to hear what you think of the show. You can email us at decrypted at Bloomberg.net or on Twitter. I'm at Eric Newcomer. If you work for Uber, you know, send me a DM. That's shameless. <laughs> and on Twitter, I'm at Brad Stone. If you haven't already, please take a moment to rate and review our show. It's the best way to help us get the show in front of new listeners. This episode was produced by Pia Gadkari, Liz Smith, Magnus Henriksen. We'll see you next week.